I've given up believing in anything the weather app tells me. All right, everybody. It says 100% it is snowing outside. I went outside this morning. It was not snowing at my house. It might have been snowing at your house, but it was not at mine. All right. So we're still waiting in anticipation. I have three small children at home who are all watching out the window. They don't care about icy roads. They don't care about anything that we adults care about. They just want to see snow. All right, everybody. So their prayers are matched against yours. And I just, I don't want to offend you this morning, but I don't think you're going to win. All right, everybody. But that's probably taking place there. If it starts snowing during the service, they'll come in and tell us. I'm sure somebody will give us the signal. Uh, and we'll have a snowball fight after church today. All right, everybody, it'll be, it'll be really good. But some housekeeping things before we get started. Uh, first one is, I told you, this would be the third week. It is Valentine's Day. And this is the third week that my daughter Hava has sent something up here for all of you to see. She is three years old and she is loving the attention that she is getting because of the things she draws. And so the finale, the third week, she drew me. This is my Valentine card, everybody. All right. You don't get one of these from Hava. She only makes them for me. And it has a smiley face because I've told you before, if you're not smiling at me, at least this is. All right. All service long. Speaking of Valentine's Day cards, we have a special treat for you that we do at certain intervals throughout the year. And the one we've done for Valentine's Day is in the men's bathroom. Again, everybody, we have free Valentine's Day cards for all of you men. You might have seen them and you might be blaming me right now for kind of letting the cat out of the bag. All right. But they are in there and they are free for you to take. All right. If you forgot somehow that today is Valentine's Day, we have free cards for you in there. Grab whichever one you want. Wash your hands first, then grab whichever one you want. All right. For your spouse or loved one that you can take there. Those are free. We are not going to throw you under the bus either. Next week, I'm not going to get up and be like, these are the cards that we had in there. Ladies, if you received one of these, you know where it came from. We don't do that here at Victory. We are in your corner. All right. We love you very much. And so those are available for you. Ladies, if you forgot, you're on your own. All right. If you, we don't have anything for you. I just, that's just on you. All right. But those are in there. Take one, take two, however many you need. Go ahead and take those. We want to be for you. But we are in part three of our series. It's not about you. And that's a great series for Valentine's Day, everybody. Don't write that in the card. But that is our series that we're in. We've been kind of realigning our heart with the heart of our Savior. We've been kind of refocusing our lives in what God actually wants us to focus on. And so as we welcome each other to church, as we have times of fellowship, as we watch online, we have times of worship all together, it's important to remember where our focus should be and what this whole thing is actually about. And so that's what we've been doing this month. And you might have noticed uh, that we have been kind of aligning this month around an outreach opportunity that we have as a church. Uh, and that is our Night to Shine. That was on Friday night. Just incredible, incredible outreach opportunity. And so I just want to say thank you to all of you who helped set up for it, all those who came out and served, those who gave towards it, of your time. And every, And then I want to say thank you to the church as a whole, because you guys might not know this. We, we usually don't do this for outreach and these kind of things. We don't get up here and like, hey, would you give towards this? Because there's no way we can make it happen unless 50 of you give $5. And we, we don't do that kind of thing. Instead, we just took money that you already gave and we used it to reach out. We used it to reach the community. Just an awesome opportunity we as a church get to do. And so I want to say thank you. I just want to say thank you to you guys. And the media team put together a video of the night, uh, just showcasing some of the serving and some of the opportunities we had as a church to be a light to our community. And so I want you guys go ahead and check it out.
sing the Queen of Night to Shine. Shine for you. Incredible, incredible job, church. And so I just want to say thank you. Just well done, church. I know you don't do it for the accolades. I know you don't do it for the pat on the back. You don't do it for the applause. But I just want to say thank you. That's God's heart, that we would be people who spread his light and his love, both in our community where he's planted us and everywhere that we go, that we have that opportunity. And so we as a church, we've had to cancel a lot of things in this last year and this new year. And there's some things we've had to rearrange and do. But there are some things that we just do because it's the heart of the church. Some things that we do because that's who we are. And no matter what, we're going to continue to find a way to do it. So well done, everyone. And so we're in this part three of the series. It's not about you. And I think we're just realigning our heart with the heart of our Savior. We're realigning our focus. We're realigning some priorities with the heart of our God. One of the passages we've been reading was from Philippians chapter 3. And we start from this in this series because a lot of what our culture and what we live in, and it's not a new idea, but it's just something that's become more prevalent. A lot of what we live in and what we go day to day and we immerse ourselves in as we live our lives is set against this idea that it's not about you. It kind of we're kind of defaulted to this idea that it is all about me, that my world revolves around me and that everything that I do should focus on getting what I deserve. And so in Philippians, Paul talks about this and he says that there are those who have set themselves up and they live lives as enemies of the cross of Christ. There are those who live lives as enemies of the cross. And why do they do that? It goes on later to say because they set their mind on earthly things. There's God is their stomach and their desires and their pleasures. So they've set their mind on earthly things. He's not talking about the world. He's talking about Christians in this passage. That even though they, they say one thing with their mouth, their heart is set somewhere else. And so they become living lives that are enemies of the cross. And so in verse 20, he says, but our citizenship is in heaven. And we eagerly await a savior from there, the Lord Jesus Christ. We have a totally different motivation for life. We have a totally different set of rules that we live by because we know where our citizenship is. And so the way we interact with people, the way we interact with the world should reflect that. That that's where we set our focus. That's where our priorities are. And so in week one, we talked about that it's not about you. It's about eternity. That our citizenship is in heaven. And so we should live as citizens of heaven. 
Not that they were there already, but that we can live with those rules and those principles that we can begin to shape this life that is about eternity. And then in week two, we talked about, well, then how can we live with an eternal perspective? How can, we, how can we show in our lives that we are citizens of heaven? And Jesus told us this in Mark chapter 10, verse 45. He said, For the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve, setting this example for us, and to give his life as a ransom for many. In other words, the idea is not, how can I make myself great, but how can I lift others? How can I love others? If the Son of God didn't even come to be served, but to serve. So how should we live our lives in response to that? And so we talked about that in week two. We saw that if we make a difference in this life, we have to find people to lift, people to love. And so this week we have to find out then who is it we're supposed to be serving? Because if it's about eternity and it's about serving, about storing up treasures in heaven, not treasures on earth, then who is it that we're supposed to be serving? And Jesus straight up told us in Luke chapter 19, watch this, for the son of man came to seek and to save the lost. To seek and to save the lost. So if you're taking notes today, come on, in Victory, we believe in taking notes. you got to fill in the blank version of there in the app if you'd like that. But go ahead and take a note with me. Jot it down. It's not about you, everybody. It's about the lost. It's not about you. It's not about me. It's about the lost. Now, it's kind of a funny way to say it, and I think it causes a lot of people maybe to have uh, some misunderstandings about what it means to be lost. It's like a hunter I heard about that got lost in the woods for three days. Come on, that sounds like some of you this past season. Got lost for three days, was running low on food and water until he came across another hunting camp. And he had gotten kind of frustrated, but he broke into this clearing and saw a little fire. And he was so excited he had found another human being. And he ran up to the other hunter and he said, man, I'm so glad to see you. I've been lost for three days. And the other hunter said, well, don't get too excited. I've been lost for three weeks. Come on, somebody. (laughs) I mean, no, that's a bad situation that you get into. That's not kind of loss that we're talking about this morning, all right? And I think Jesus knew that some of us would get a little confused about this idea of loss, grasping that concept. And so there's an entire chapter of the Bible, Luke chapter 15, that helps us understand this concept of lost. So if you want to turn in your Bibles to Luke chapter 15, that's this thing with pages in it, everybody. If you don't have that, we have it up on the screens for you. But we're going to start in verse 1, that Jesus starts to tell stories about what he means when he's talking about the lost. Starting verse 1, Luke chapter 15. Now the tax collectors... And sinners, I'm going to come back to that word, all right? I love that that word is in there. We're all gathering around to hear Jesus. But the Pharisees and the teachers of the law muttered, come on, they muttered, this man welcomes sinners and eats with them. Obviously, pause for a moment. These guys have this perspective, these Pharisees and teachers of the law. They have this perspective that is very toxic. And we talked about this a little last month, that this echoes a little something in your mind. We talked about this same concept, that there is a religious disease, I would call it, that has worked its way into the church. And it's not a new thing. It was all the way back then where religious people tried to create this this sin of Christianity. They tried to create this divide. They tried to set apart there is the us and there is the them. They try to create this divide. And you may have seen this in the church. You may have seen this in the world. We create camps in our mind where there is us, the religious people, and then there is them, the sinners. They are the sinners over there, right? And they don't just say sinners, right? It's sinners. Those are the sinners. And I am the only true shining beacon of light. That's how people begin to create this divide in their minds. Come on, when I do something bad, I have issues. But with you, you are a sinner, like, I'm just working through some stuff. You're a sinner over there. You're just, and this is what the Pharisees are doing in this passage. They're muttering. Come on, they just love to mutter, 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 mutter. 
And they're saying those. And so Jesus, Jesus begins to tell this story. I'm telling you, it destroys, though, the church and our influence when these camps are allowed to exist. When we try to create these divide, this us-them mentality. And Jesus, through all his ministry and all his teachings, he destroys this idea. But particularly so in Luke chapter 15. Because religious people are always trying to create this divide between. And we're all in this camp. And if you've ever been in one of those camps, you've ever been an us-them type of person, you know that they love to mutter. Come on, somebody. If you've ever been, come on, you're not there anymore. But if you were ever in one of those types of people, you know they just love to mutter among themselves. Like, I can't believe. Did you see that he was doing that? And can you believe? I just can't believe that she would go there. And I just don't know. And they just mutter, mutter, mutter all the time. And I just, and they just love to do it. And come on, in the modern age, we do it over text now. You, some of you perfected how to mutter over texting. But we mutter and we mutter on social media. We just, we mutter all the time trying to create this divide between us and them. We the squeaky clean and they the sinners in their filth. And I'm telling you, it's a toxic perspective when it gets in the church. When we allow this to get inside, we create these divides between people. And so they start to mutter. Well, Jesus is far enough away that he doesn't hear them. But the fun thing about Jesus that you read in the Gospels is that he knew people's thoughts. How many know you'd be in trouble if you hung around with people who knew your thoughts? But he knew their thoughts. And so Jesus, this, is, this would, I, honestly, this bugged me out about spending time with Jesus. Because he would just call out people knowing what they were thinking. And so thank the Lord we didn't have to live through this. But instead of engaging them in this long theological argument, that's not what you read in Luke 15. He just tells them three stories. Jesus, knowing their thoughts, watch this in verse, he knew their thoughts, and so he tells them three stories. And I love this about Jesus, that he would tell stories from their modern-day culture that they could understand to address the problem that they had in their life. First story starts in verse 3. Jesus told them a parable. That's what a story is. It's just a parable. If suppose one of you has a hundred sheep and loses one of them. And so now he's drawn them in. They know what sheep are. They know how sheep are. And so now he's drawn them into the story. Suppose one of you has a hundred of them and loses one of them. Doesn't he leave the 99 in the open country and go after the lost sheep until he finds it? And when he finds it, he joyfully puts it on his shoulders and goes home. Then he calls his friends and neighbors together and he says, rejoice with me. I have found my lost sheep. And I tell you, in the same way, there will be more rejoicing in heaven over one. And I think, I think that Jesus kind of says this tongue in cheek here. Because if you're not finding humor in your Bible, you're reading it wrong. All right, everybody. And so I think that he gets to this part and he looks over at those Pharisees and says, rejoicing in heaven over one sinner than over 99 of you who think you have it all together. As he's saying, there's more rejoicing. And that's the word they just use, saying that he hangs out with tax collectors and sinners. That's the word they've been thinking in their mind. And so at the end of this first story, Jesus says, there's more rejoicing over one sinner, one person like them that you talk about, than over 99 of you who think you have the world all put together in the right way. The 99 of you who think everything is just great in your own lives. There's more rejoicing over one sinner. And Jesus teaches us some incredible principles in this first story. So I want to pull a couple of those out. It's not the end-all, be-all list, but I want to pull a couple of things we can learn from this first story that Jesus is showing us about this us-them mentality, confronting it. And I think we need to confront this in our own lives as well. Jot it down if you're taking notes. First thing is we are all sheep. Come on, somebody. I'm going to offend you a little bit today. We are all sheep. So we're sorting out this thing of what lost means. 
We're trying to sort out this idea of what does it mean for there to be loss? Well, Jesus came to find the loss. Well, what does it mean? Well, you don't lose something that you don't originally possess. The shepherd had a hundred and he lost one. All right, everybody. And so that tells us there isn't an us, them in God's eyes. He doesn't divide humanity into us and them. He looks at us all. He loves us all. And the only difference is there are some who are lost and some who are found. But we are all sheep. And so God is looking at us with the same love and the same thing. And so he doesn't create this separation that sometimes religious people do. And if we'll gain his perspective, I think it'll change our focus of the world. If we'll gain his perspective that everyone is a sheep, that everyone is loved of God and is wanted by God, and that some are lost and some are found, I think it would change our focus a little bit. I think it would align ourselves with the heart of God a little bit. Because many religious folks, they look at the unchurched or they look at the de-churched, and they have this perspective of God, God's mad at you. God doesn't want you. God wants is waiting to destroy you. There's no way God could ever love you. And they have this perspective. And honestly, it comes through in the way that we live. It comes through in the way that we treat other people. And we begin to have this perspective of, well, thank God I'm not you. Thank God that I, I know I'm not where I want to be, but thank the Lord I'm just not you. I'm not where you are. Thank the Lord that, that when God loves me, but there's no way he could love you. And honestly, it drives people from God. And it gives the wrong perspective of the heart of God. That we are all sheep. Some are lost and some are found. But it's God's heart that all would be found. The Bible says it's his heart that none would perish, that all could be saved. That makes sense, everybody. That's why the lost need to be home The lost deserve to be home just as much as you and I do. And I think that would change our perspective. I think that would change the way that we love people. All right, you got to get with it because I'm preaching better than you're responding today. All right, everybody. So I'm going to preach at you all service. Buckle your church belt. All right. Second thing we see, jot it down if you're taking notes, is when something is lost, it changes your focus. When there is something that is lost, it changes your focus. If you have something and then you take inventory and realize that it's lost, because the shepherd, he's just shepherding his sheep, right? And he counts, he takes inventory and he realizes, I had 100, now there's 99, there's one that's lost. And so it changes the focus of the story. The shepherd doesn't see he has 99 and then still go to bed and do everything he was going to do. No, he says, I've lost one and now I'm going to change my mission, change my vision. I'm going to look for the one that's lost. Because he counted and realized only 99 are present. Those of you who have young children, you know what I'm talking about when you're ever out in public, right? When you count and you realize that one is missing, one has run, one has climbed into the elevator and gone somewhere, one has done, you, it changes the focus, right? Because once you have kids, all right, everybody, if you have three or more, you can't play man-to-man anymore, right? You've got to switch to a zone defense, all right, when you're out in public. Like, you've got two, I've got the one. And then those of you who have like five, six, seven kids, you're just, you sound like Rain Man out in public, right? One, two, three, four, five, six, one, two, three, four, five, six, seven. Don't talk to me. Don't distract me. One, two, three. It changes your focus when one goes missing. It changes what you're looking. It changes the whole event. The whole plan of the day goes by the wayside when one is missing. It changes the focus. And so the shepherd counts, realizes only nine are there, 99 are there. And so it changes the focus. He said, we got to get the 99 to the open country so they're safe. And now we're going to go search for the one that's lost. Do you ever take inventory in your life? I have to do this because I'm a prolific loser of things, all right? That's just my spiritual gifting is to lose things. And so I can lose keys. I can lose wallets. I can lose vehicles. I can just, I can lose anything in my life. I have to look for it. Like, I can't wait for the day 
that they attach that thing that beeps to everything. That I could just, I could just make anything in my life make a little beep noise because I can't find anything. I lose, so I have to take inventory constantly. What do you do when you are missing something? Like when you're riding down the phone and you realize you don't have your phone anymore. You're riding down the road, your phone is missing. Or maybe you've left a restaurant and you go somewhere else and you realize that when you go to pay, your wallet is gone. What do you do? You don't just say, well, it's fine. I don't need that thing. Come on, some of you are attached to your phone at the hip. Some of you, you go down the road and you don't have your phone. You're like, my God in heaven, can I breathe oxygen without it? I must turn around and I must go and get that phone, right? Because if I don't post on Instagram in the next 10 minutes, they will call the cops because they will be convinced that I have perished and that this world is, I'm gone from this world, right? If I don't post on some kind of social media. And so we begin to have these ideas. You don't, if you get to the next place to pay and your wallet is gone, you're not like, well, it's fine. Like, I'll just wait till the fraud starts, right? I'll just wait till, that's what I'll go looking for. Discover will call me. They're great. That's not what you do. No, your, your mind is distracted by that which is lost. It changes the focus of what your day is going to be about. You don't just keep doing what you've been doing. You take inventory. You realize something is lost and you search for it. Truth is, we have to realize that plans have to change and that lost people affect the heart of God. First thing we learned from this story that we leave the 99 in the open country. He says the shepherd, he's not so worried about the ones that are safe, but his heart is for the one that's lost. And so how much more we Christians should have that on our heart, that it changes our focus. That Jesus said, I came to seek and to save that which is lost. I would go as far as to say that God's heart is distracted by that which is lost. It's constantly looking and searching and seeking to find the one that's lost. And so his focus, his vision is to find and restore that which is lost. And I think one of the pet peeves that God maybe has with the Christianity, with the church, honestly, in today's world. One of the peeves he might have with us is that a lot of us are acting like we're already in paradise. And ain't nobody lost. That we're already, we already made it there and there's nobody lost. And so we're having this idea of, well, there's nobody lost. And so can I just have my way? Can Christianity just be about me? Can I just, can we sing my favorite song? And can we have four hour church services? And can, you know, I get a touch from heaven. Can I make this whole thing about me? And God is saying to us, look, somebody, we have to begin to focus on those who are lost. God is saying there are sheep who are lost. And so we have all eternity to do all that. That's great. But can you get your eyes up off yourself and focus on those that are lost? Can we begin to realize that there are those in our world, those who God has given us influence over, that are still not found? We have to begin to focus on the lost. Come on, how about we act like there are people who are lost? Now, I'm great with all that. We can get a touch from heaven. We can minister out of the overflow. I'm okay with all of that, but sometimes we have to refocus our lives. We have to refocus our eyes and our focus on those that are lost. We've got to get ourselves out of this self-focused perspective. And that therefore means we should change our focus not to be about us, but to be about the lost. Because it matters to the heart of God. And so it should certainly matter to us. Story number two. Jesus says in verse eight, or suppose a woman has ten silver coins and loses one. Doesn't she light a lamp, sweep the house and search carefully until she finds it? And when she finds it, she calls her friends and neighbors together and says, rejoice with me. I have found my lost coin. In the same way, he says, I tell you, there is rejoicing in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner. Come on, there's that word again. Who repents. Jesus teaches two more principles. Jot it down if you're taking notes. The first one, the value of what is lost determines the intensity of the search. The value over what is lost. So now we're with this woman who's lost the ten silver coins. 
It determines how intensely you search for. Come on, in my house, you cannot lay down or walk anywhere without sticking like your foot with one of these little hairpins, right? Come on, somebody. You know what I'm talking about, that you put in. Or finding one of those little rubber bands that holds your hair back. We have two ladies in my house. And so you cannot go anywhere without finding one of those little things. I don't know what they're called. They hold your hair back so it doesn't hurt, all right? That's what those things are for, everybody. But you have to find one of those things. But what happens when somebody needs one of those things? They are nowhere to be found. They cover. We literally have a floor made out of them. And then when you need one, they are nowhere to be found. But what do you do when you can't find it? You don't tear the whole house apart looking. Well, maybe some of you do. But you don't tell you go to Costco and buy 7,000 of them for 50 cents. Come on. If you're a good husband, you just pick them up just by habit. You're just like, we need more of those. I don't know where they all go. I think the devil hides them. But we just, we need some more of those. You just pick up those things, but you don't tear the house apart trying to find it. The the value of the thing determines the intensity of the search. That's a good practical principle for a lot of you that spend hours and hours looking for that $1 thing. The value of the thing determines the intensity of the search. And I've told this story before, but I am a finite person with limited stories. So here goes again. All right, everybody. Back in high school, in my senior year, my physics project, we had to make a boat out of cardboard. And float it with us inside on the LSU lakes. Come on, somebody. How many know that's a great idea for high school seniors? And how many know it went just about as well as you think it went? All right, everybody. But we took a thousand cardboard boxes and duct tape and we just duct taped those things together. We put it out on the lake and we all got inside and we floated for about 10 seconds, about as long as we could swim with that cardboard box. And so we hauled it out of the lake and we threw it in the back of my truck and we headed back to the school. And so on the way back, I hit the interstate and we're out there and people are honking their horns and waving at us. And so we're just basking in it, right? Because one of my buddies worked at the movie theater. And so we had taped these 12 foot tall, like movie props to this boat. These those cardboard stands up they have. And so this boat was this monstrosity, beautiful. I love that boat. And so we're just waving at people and they're shouting and we're waving and smiling. Come to find out what happens when you throw 100 now partially disintegrated cardboard boxes in the back of your truck and don't tie it down. Because you're an idiot in high school, all right, everybody? And so what happens is exactly what you think happens. We got back to the high school, and it's like, where's the boat? Where's anything? Like, my truck was clean. Like, there's nothing in the back. Let me tell you what I did not do, all right, everybody? Now, I know it's terrible for the environment. I know it's terrible for whatever, you know, might offend you a little bit. But what I did not do is like, hey, guys, we are going to go look for every one of those boxes. Like, I'm afraid of the Baton Rouge government, and I'm afraid, like, of the environmental police. And I, I'm just afraid. And so we are going to take two weeks, and we're going to look. No, we didn't. I got my B-, and I never thought about those boxes ever again. All right, everybody? I, it never even entered my mind. It didn't worry me one bit, because the value of the thing that is lost determines the intensity of the search. I'm not going out there looking for any cardboard boxes. It's not valuable. We don't care about those. But you read this story, the intensity of the search in the story, the 10 coins that the woman lost, that would have been a part of the gift that her family would have given her as her dowry. They would sew that in that culture. They would sew those coins into a headband and that would be the woman's dowry. And so this was an incredibly important gift that she had. This is not just money, though it is money, if that speaks to you in some way, but that not just money. This would have been her dowry. This would have been the value she could bring into her marriage. That would help her family, her future family, that her family had given her, that would help them get their start. So this would have been incredibly important to her. Of course, she would sweep the entire house. Of course, she would turn it upside down. Of course, she would light a lamp and look and look and look until she found it. Because the value of the thing that is lost determines the intensity of the search. One more for you guys. Maybe this will help drive the point home just a little bit better. 
But I play golf about once a year, all right, everybody? Now that I had kids, about once every three years that I get to go out there. But in college, I used to play a lot more. And so I got to know a little bit about golf courses, and I got to know a little bit about you people who play golf, all right, everybody? I now count myself as one of your number. But I realized something about golfers, about people who frequent the golf course, and that is there are two types of golfers in this world. All right, there are two types. The first type is the one that's out there Saturday morning, bright and early on the first tee, right? The clubhouse is watching, all their friends are around, and they step up to tee number one, and they put that golf ball down, and their pockets are bulging with golf balls, all right? Anybody ever seen this type of golfer? Anybody admit you are this type of golfer, all right? I'm talking just like overflow golf balls, and they are usually balls that you have stolen from the range. Come on, somebody, that you have fished out of the pond. If you have one of those little extenders to fish things out, you are either over 90 or bad at golf, all right? I'm not trying to be offensive, but that's just the way that it is. But these are golf balls they have stolen from the range, and they put that golf ball down, and they hit it with everything they've got, all right? They just rear back, and they hit that ball. And as that ball is dove hooking out into outer space, as it is just, just curving out into no man's land, they are already putting down the next ball. They're already setting up because that ball's not, nobody cares about that ball. I'm going to hit the next one because I stole that one. What do I care about it? Right, I'm going to hit this next ball because it has no value. Then there is the second type of golfer. Come on, stick with me, everybody. There's the second type of golfer that has, right, they get up early. They hit the range at 4 a.m. before anybody else is out there. They pride themselves as a bit of a golfer. And they play with a $4 golf ball called a Pro V1 made by Titleist. A lot of people play it. They play with a $4 golf ball that they got. They put that thing on the tee, and when they hit that thing, if it goes out of bounds in the creek, you can say goodbye to your round of golf ever starting because they will look for that thing for four hours. All right, everybody? You will see them wading in the creek. They'll pull out the poncho. You will see them swimming in the lake because it's a $4 golf ball, and they only hit it once, all right? And so they will look for four days to find that golf ball down there in the water. Like my wife told me not to buy a $4 golf ball. She told me not to buy And they will search for that thing because the value of the thing determines the intensity of the search. And so you can just head back to the clubhouse, everybody, because you're not playing golf today. You're just going to wait on them. The value of the item determines the intensity of the search. And the reason I told these three stories, everybody, is how much more so us. And I don't know where in those stories you find yourself, but how much more so us if we give such intensity of search to one of those things. As the church that we should be searching for the lost. Then in our mind we, we spend hours and days sometimes looking for each of those things. Whether it's money or a golf ball. Or How much more so us though church. Should we be looking for the lost. Because it's not a golf ball. It's not a hairband. It's not a coin. It's a lost soul. It's a person that God loves. It's a person that Jesus died for. And so how much more us should be searching those that are lost. The next thing we learn, and honestly, we learned this in the first two stories that Jesus tells us, is that heaven celebrates when the lost are found. So it's not only that that we're looking and at the intensity of the search, it's not only that that's what we're called to do, but also we learn that heaven celebrates when one lost person is found. When one lost person is found. When one person gives their life to Christ, Jesus is making the point in these stories. Listen, guys, it's so important, but not just because of the masses. It's so important because when one person is saved. That's why at Victory, one person is so valuable. We put value on each individual because Jesus does. He says all of heaven erupts like they do the Lambo leap. Come on, somebody. They, they do a touchdown dance. This is an incredible celebration. Anybody remember Icky Woods? Anybody remember the Icky Shuffle? Any NFL historians? 
Nobody? All right, I'll just I'll die on that hill up here alone. All right, everybody? Icky shuffle where he would first first touchdown dads in NFL history. Like nowadays you need a choreographer and you need like half the team to pull off the touchdown dance. But Icky would just spike the ball and kind of like do this little like hand wave. It was awful, everybody. Worst dance in the world. But that's not the point. The point is heaven celebrates when one lost person is saved. When one person finds their way home, it celebrates. All of heaven celebrated. So now Jesus has told two stories. He's gotten these points across. He's saying we celebrate. He's saying the intensity is so high because the value is so great. Imagine the value of one lost soul. All of heaven is celebrating. So the intensity is so high. And so he's told these two stories, but the people are probably thinking, and you might have thought this as you read these stories, thinking, well, we're not objects. We're not things, Jesus. We're not a coin and we're not a sheep. And we're just, we're not these, these objects. I don't understand what the point of, we're not even lost. Like we know where we are. Like, I know that I'm on 3953 North Flannery Road. Like, they're saying, we know we're right here, Jesus. We know how to get home. We're not lost. So we don't quite understand what this has to do with us. And Jesus tells story number three about what lost even means. And it's a story that all of you know, but I think sometimes we lose the context of how he arrives at this story. So story number three, verse 11, Jesus continued. There was a man who had two sons. And the younger one said to his father, Father, give me my share of the estate And so he divided his property between them. So just to set the stage for you in this culture, the oldest son would get two-thirds of the estate, and then the rest of it would be divided among the rest of the kids. And so because he only had two sons, a third of the estate would go to this younger son and go to him. But by saying, Father, I want this now, I want my inheritance, he's saying to the father, Dad, I wish you were dead. That's what he's saying, in in effect. He's saying, I wish I had my inheritance now. I I reject any influence that you have on my life. I reject any relationship that I could have with you. And so he says, I want my estate right now. I want what happens when you die. And so I just, I want to cut off completely this relationship. Just give me what I would get when you're gone. That's what he says to the father. And so the father divides his property between them. And so watch this. Whenever we disconnect relationally, drifting happens. All right, everybody? It's just a byproduct of disconnection relationally. You see this. But he says not long after, this younger son got together all he had. And he set off for a distant country and there squandered his wealth in wild living. But downturn comes, spends everything, but there's a severe famine. And he begins to be in need. And so watch this. Verse 15. He went and hired himself out to a citizen who sent him to his fields to feed the pigs. So he goes to work for the pig farmer. All right, everybody? And he longed to fill his stomach with the pods that the pigs were eating. So he's out there with the pigs, but no one gave him anything. And so watch verse 17. When he came to his senses, he said, how many of my father's hired servants have food to spare? And here I am starving to death. Like I have no food. I'm with the pigs. I will sit out and go back to my father. And I'll say to him, father, I've sinned against heaven and against you. So he says, I I realize I can't go back as a son, but maybe I can just go back because they have food. Even the servants and the slaves, they have food. And I'll say to him, I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired servants. And so he got up and he went to his father. Now watch this church. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion for him. And he ran to his son, he threw his arms around him, and he kissed him. It's just a beautiful illustration of God's heart towards us. And Jesus tells this story last, because he said he talked about the sheep and he talked about the coin. But now he's coming to the point that he wants to make about the lost. 
And so he tells this story about this son who ran so far, but the father's watching for him and he comes home. And so three principles from this story as we close today. The first one is loss is not defined by our location, but by our affiliation. By our relationship, because the son is disconnected from the father relationally. He's had that rift. He's not lost geographically. The son knows where he is. He knows how to go home. At no point does he not know where the father lives. At no point does he not know where he is. He's not lost by his geographic location. He's lost relationally. He's been disconnected from the father. That rift is there. He said, I wish you were dead. I wish I was away from you. I, don't, I reject your influence. I reject anything else you could put into my life. All I want is my inheritance and I'm going to go. And so he's disconnected from the father relationally. And there are many people in this world, some of us even in this room, we're not physically lost. We know where we are. We're in a church service even. We know physically where we are, but we're disconnected from the Father. And we've been doing the church thing for a long time, or maybe we've never been to church, and this is our first time. Maybe whatever place you're in, we know where we are physically, but we're relationally disconnected from the Father. That's what Jesus is talking about. He brings all of this to a head of the fact that we can easily be geographically found, but relationally lost. That this is what he's talking about, the lost. That they're disconnected from God. He's saying, guys, it's not about a sheep. It's not about a coin. I came to seek and to save people who are disconnected from the Father. Who don't know the Father's heart towards them. Who have severed that relationship. Second principle, it teaches us. And honestly, as I prayed over this, young people, I hope you hear me in this. And that is that the world will promise you everything and give you nothing. What we learn from this is that as the younger son runs out into the world, what he thinks is the world, the Bible says that sin has this fleeting pleasure for a while. And it promises you everything and it gives you nothing. In fact, it takes everything from you. That sin in our life, that you see this young person run out. And what we don't see oftentimes is that it will leave you hurting and it will leave you empty. He found himself in that pig pen. In that pigsty, laying in the mud, just wishing to eat what the pigs were eating. And for a Jewish young person, this would have been the most distant place he could have gone from the teachings of his culture and the teachings of his father. Because in their culture, the pigs were considered unclean. And so the only place he found himself is lying in that one place that is as far as he could get from where his culture and his father would have expected for him to grow up to be. And he finds himself in that pigsty. And I don't, I don't know what that is for you and your place, but a lot of us have found ourselves in that place as far away as you could get from the things that you know are right and the things that you know are clean and the things that you know are God's heart for you. We found ourselves as far away and many of us have woken up in that pigsty as far away as you could get. There's no further place he could have gone. And in that place, in the mud and wishing he could eat what the pigs eat, he finds himself empty and hurting on the inside finds the emptiness that he finds we need to understand the world is the exact same way it promises so much and it gives us nothing it gives us nothing that if the enemy had his way we would be empty and we would be hurting that he comes to steal to kill and to destroy that's the only intent that he has and so everything else that the world promises it does not fulfill It's there to kill and to steal and to destroy. And the beautiful thing about the gospel is that God shows up at just the right moment. We read something or you see something or you talk to someone and you hear that word. You see God's heart for you just the right moment. We come to our senses. And so the son, for his moment, he's laying in the pigsty. And his mind goes back to that moment. And he says, in my father's house, even the servants have food. 
In my father's house, even they feel the love of the father. In my father's house, I don't have to be in this place. And for all of us, there's that moment where the gospel reaches in and speaks to our heart that God shows himself. That moment that somebody speaks to us or we see the face of God, we hear his voice. And so he begins to think, in my father's house, he comes to his senses. But in his mind, he does what a lot of us do. And he says, his first thought is, well, I'm not worthy to even return there. And so how how can I even earn my way? I know I can't go back as a son. And so maybe I could be a servant or a slave. Maybe I could work in my father's house just to earn my way back. And he begins to have these thoughts of, "Could could I just earn my way? I'm not worthy as a son, but that's not the way that it works. I think for some of us, We've come to our senses and we realize where we are, how far we've run and how far we are. But in our minds, we still think with that mentality of, could I earn my way back to the love of God? Could I, could I somehow work my way back into the house? Could I somehow, somehow do enough to outweigh all the bad that I've done? Could I do enough good to outweigh it? And that's not the way that it works. There's not enough good we could do in this life to outweigh the bad. That's why Jesus had to come. That's why he died on the cross. That's why he rose again. He wiped our sin away. There's nothing we could do to return to the Father. There's nothing we could do of our own that could bring us back in right standing with God. But Jesus on the cross paid the price for our sin. That those who are relationally disconnected from the Father could come home. Church, that is the gospel that Jesus came to seek and to save those that are lost. Those that are relationally disconnected from the Father. He gave his life so that we could come home. When I was younger, I heard a story told that stayed with me for all of my life now. And it was about a young girl named Christina who lived with her mother outside of the city of Rio de Janeiro in Brazil. 15 years old. She and her mother Maria lived alone in a little village outside of the city. And she decided that she wanted to make her own way in life. She wanted to live her own life. And so at 15 years old, she ran away from home. And Maria woke up the next morning to find her bed empty and her daughter gone. And so she waited. And for weeks, she heard nothing about her daughter. She had no word. She had no idea where she had gone. She had no idea what had happened to her. And so for weeks, she saved up money and she finally, she bought a bus ticket into the city thinking maybe that's where her daughter was. And so Maria arrives in the city a few weeks later and she gets out and she goes into a photo booth. And she makes as many photocopies as she can afford of a picture of herself. And Maria tells this part of the story. She says for weeks, she went every place she thought her daughter could be. And at night she went to the nightclub and at midnight she went to the midnight hotels and she went to the bars and she went to the club. Everywhere she thought her daughter would have to be to make a living. And every time coming up empty. But before she would leave each place, she would leave a picture of herself somewhere on a bathroom mirror, in a phone booth, on a a hotel lobby board. Somewhere she would leave that picture of herself hoping against hope that her daughter would somehow find that. She never found her little girl. And so with tears in her eyes, when her money ran out, she boarded the bus back to her village. And a few weeks later, 
Christina came stumbling down the steps of a hotel where she had spent the night before, trapped in this life that her mother had feared, trapped in the guilt and the depression and the shame, trapped in that life that she tried to escape, filled with the guilt. And Christina tells this part of the story. She says she looked across that hotel lobby thinking there's no way she could go back to her old life, thinking there's no way her mother would even want her anymore. And she saw a familiar face. She saw that picture of her mom stuck up on that message board. And Christina says she stumbles across and she pulled that picture down and she turned it over and she read the note that her mom had written on every single picture that she had put up. And it simply said, I don't care what you've done and I don't care what you've become. I just want you home. And Christina says that that day she got on the bus and she went home. Church, we have to remember that there is a world that is trapped in guilt and shame, longing to be made right, wanting to be home with the Father, but they expect that the church would judge them. That the church would reject them. That there's no way God would ever want them. And yet the heart of the Father is the same. I don't care what you've done. I don't care what you've become. I don't care where you're stuck. I want you home. The heart of the Father is for us. That He loves us. That when you came to God. When you came dirty and broken. That He received you without reservation. Without rejection. That God brought you in and made you clean. And that his heart is the same towards them. That there are some who are found and there are some who are still lost. But God loves them all and God wants them home. And so church, we have to remember it's not about us. It's about the lost. That God is waiting for them to come home. That his heart is for them. That he's desperate for them to know that Jesus paid the price. Maybe there's some of you today that you're in that place and it's your heart that you want to be made right with God, but you just expect that you would be judged by the church or rejected by those who call themselves Christians. I want you to know that God wants you and that God loves you. That he wants you to come home. That the promise is still there that all of us are supposed to be his. That he desperately wants you and that Jesus died for you just as much as anyone else. That he's calling you to come home and the message of the Father. And I pray that you would hear that message. I don't care where you've been. I don't care what you're into. I don't care how long you've done it. I don't care how long you've run. That God still wants you. That he can still save you. Shame on us, church, if we ever make this about ourselves. Shame on us as Christians if we ever hold the church hostage to our own desires and our own perspective. If we ever hold the ministry of the gospel hostage to our own ways that we want. Shame on us. Because it's not about us. Jesus said he came to seek and to save the lost. That we are part of this search and rescue mission. It's not about us, church. It's about the lost. We will do everything we can. Leverage everything we have to reach those with the message of the gospel. Would you bow your heads with me as we close in prayer today?
Father, we thank you. We thank you that you include us in this mission. We thank you that, Jesus, you came for us when we did not deserve it. And so help us to extend the love of God to those around us. How can we do any less? So, Lord, align us again with your heart. Give us the strength to live out the mission of the gospel. That we would know it's not about us, it's about the lost. Father, use us. Church, as you bow your heads and you close your eyes. Last point from this story that Jesus is teaching us is that the Father is waiting for the lost to come home. He's waiting for you to come home. The Father is waiting. The story says that he waited on the porch. He looked out afar. That means he was waiting, looking down the road. I want you to know, everybody, heaven is waiting on heaven's porch. And it's watching and it's saying, maybe this is the day. Maybe this is that moment where they say yes. Maybe this is that time and they're watching and they're waiting. And we get to be a part of that. That every time you share the gospel, every time you sow a seed, every time you talk with a coworker, every time you show the love of Christ, that we are part of that mission. That the Father is waiting for them to come home. And that heaven is watching and saying, maybe this is the moment. And so if you're here today, every head is bowed, every eye is closed. But if you're here today and you're saying, this is my moment. Saying, I've run a long way, but I want to come home. I fought a long fight, but I want to be made right with God. I want you to know his heart is for you. I want you to know he's waiting for you. That all of heaven is watching and waiting and thinking maybe this is their day. This is your moment. If you say, man, that's me. I, I know where I am geographically. I know where I've been doing this church thing for a long time. Or maybe you say, I've never been to church before. I know where I am geographically, but I am disconnected from God. And I want it to be right. If that's you today, I just want to pray a simple prayer with you to make it right before you go. I want you to know I'm not going to make you stand up. I'm not going to make you come to the front. All those things you might be worried about, I'm not going to make you do them. I just want to pray with you. This is about connecting you with Jesus. If you say, that's me, I want to pray that prayer. I'm going to give you the words to the prayer. You have to say them and mean them in your heart. And all the church is going to pray with you. But let this be your moment. As heaven watches and waits to rejoice over you, as, as the church is praying with you, let this be your moment that you come home. As the Father is saying, I don't care where you've been. I don't care what you've done. I want you home. If no one else has told you this, I want you to know God still loves you. God still wants you. So if that's you today. Come on, church. Let's pray with them. Nobody prays alone. Say these words out loud. Say, dear Jesus, forgive me for all of my mistakes, for all my sin. I repent. I believe that you died on the cross 
and I believe that you rose again. Now say these words, I make you the Lord of my life. In Jesus' name. God, I thank you. I thank you, Lord, that you make us a part of this search and rescue mission. God, we pray as a church, forgive us if we've ever judged or rejected those that you love. Lord, forgive us if we've ever turned away those that you are drawing. God, forgive us if we've ever made all of this all about ourselves. Help us to recognize that it's not about us, Lord. It's about the lost. And so we stand as a church who believes, Lord, that the value of the search could not be any higher. The intensity of the search could not be any higher. We believe that, Lord, and so we turn our focus to the lost. Lord, we will do everything, leverage all we have to find and to seek and to save those that are lost, to bring them to Jesus. If that's where the heart of the Father is, that's where our heart will be also. We thank you that you do make us a part of it. That you allow us to be a part of the kingdom that you're building. Help us, Lord, in all that we do. And we count it a privilege and an honor. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. And all God's church said amen and amen. Come on, church, can we put our hands together for what God has done today? Church, give me 30 seconds right now before you go. If you prayed that prayer, if you prayed that prayer for the first time or you prayed that prayer in rededication, I'd love to help you with your next steps in this Christian journey. I'll be standing at the front of the stage if you'd like to talk over. If you feel more comfortable, though, or you're watching online, text the word SAVED. The number will be on the screen, 66599. We just want to give you your next steps. I promise you it's not a marketing ploy. We don't save your number. We send you a one-time video just to help you in your next steps in Christianity and following Christ. We'd love to get that resource to you. Otherwise, be blessed, church, as you go. Be safe this week. We'll see you next Sunday morning.